Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zook. And Josh Bashong. Today we have Dr. Peel with us. And Dr. Peel, you have a long title that I'll let you get into if you want to. <laughs> I think a lot of people know who you are in, in Oklahoma and even surrounding states. You're the, you travel all over the world giving cattle market talks and, and things of that nature. And for this episode, I think, you know, I know a little bit about your history. I know you didn't grow up in Oklahoma. I but, didn't. But I wonder if you could kind of give our listeners kind of your background and a little more in-depth than maybe you've done before about where you came from, how you got here, and what makes you you. <laughs> okay. Well, that might be a long story, but, uh, uh, you know, I I, uh, I grew up in Montana, western Montana, on a small cattle and hay operation. So you Been didn't a, like beautiful scenery. And, uh, you know, I grew up <laughs> in the shadow of 9,500-foot peaks, <laughs> beautiful country, uh, and I tell people, if you could eat scenery, I'd still be there. But, you know, sometimes you got to go where the, the eating's better. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, at the time I left to go to college, I was like a lot of kids. I wanted to be away from there, right? Mm -hmm. Because of all of the things that go through an 18-year-old's head. So I was actually born in West Texas. So I have a lot of... Uh, High Plains roots that are actually have served me well in some sense in, in the time I've been in Oklahoma. But we moved, my family moved to Montana when I was a little tyke, and that's where I grew up. And that's really what I consider my sort of personal home. You know, everybody has different homes, right? So that's home yeah. home for me. Um, but then I did go to college and uh, never went back to the farm, thought I was going to for a long time, but uh, went to college and got a, uh, you know, bachelor's and a master's degree. And then I worked in southeastern Colorado again back in this country for a period of time with a master's degree for Colorado State University. That's actually where I learned about the stalker business. I had never when I when I went to Colorado, I remember guys talking about grazing wheat and I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. I thought that was why would you do that? I didn't realize that you could graze wheat and then still pull off in time and, and get grain. I had never seen that before, but I learned it there. And then eventually I decided to get a Ph.D. and uh, left. But uh, and so then when that was over, and I started looking for a job. Um, I uh, was interested in a number of places and this position at Oklahoma State came up. So. I did a brief stint finishing up my PhD at Auburn University in in uh, in Alabama. Uh, it was really part of my uh, final stages of my PhD work, and then I came to Oklahoma from there. And I've been here thirty plus years now uh, on the faculty in uh, agricultural economics at OSU. Didn't you have a stint down in Mexico? I did. So uh, in the early '90s, when NAFTA was coming along, um, again, I never had any interest in international stuff. I never took any international trade classes formally. But uh, somebody said, you know, this NAFTA stuff could be important. Why don't you go to Mexico with a group that the Department of Commerce was actually sponsoring? And uh, so I went along, and as is sometimes the case, basically I fell in love with it the very first time, and it just. On a personal level, I liked it, but also the agriculture and, and I could see the importance coming. So uh, so I started working some in Mexico, you know, just uh, as a part of my job. 
And then in 2001, I took a year-long sabbatical from my position in the department and moved my family to northern Mexico. We lived there for a year, and I did nothing but study the Mexican cattle industry and how it interacts with the U.S. Oh, that's crazy. You moved your whole family down there. We did. I had three uh, small, um, you know, elementary school kids, and uh, we took everything we could carry in a Dodge minivan. And my wife said it was the longest camping trip we've ever been on. You know, <laughs> I can imagine from a wife standpoint, like doing that. Oh my gosh! Uh, well, there's more to it if you ask my wife because sure. we we rented a nice little house. We lived in a nice neighborhood and all that. But that particular house did not have a washing machine, and she washed clothes on a rub board like oh. a Mexican for oh. a year and hung them out to dry in the back. I'm still paying that bill, I by the way. Uh, you two are still married. <laughs> That's amazing. She, she's uh, she's tough. Uh, yeah. Uh, if that didn't scare her off, I don't know what would. So we've and been, so they we've, went to school. Your kids went to school in Mexico. They did. They okay. went to a public school. You know, we weren't trying to keep them sheltered from that. We wanted mm -hmm. them to have that experience. So we found a public school that would let them come. There was one teacher in the whole school that spoke a little bit of English, and some of the kids did because they had lived with families that had been in the U.S. Some, but basically, we threw them in. Um, I'll tell this quick story. Uh, the day we dropped them off first at the school, we'd left and, you know, we we're walking down the street. My daughter was in second grade. I had one in fourth grade and one that was fifth going on sixth grade. We were walking down the sidewalk and my wife got really quiet. And I said, what are you, what's going on? And she says, do you know how mad I would have been at my parents if they had done to me what we just did to them? <laughs> <laughs> but they survived it. It was a great experience for them. Um, and it's actually one of the things I'm most proud of was giving them that experience. I think it has served them well and has made them better adults. And they are all, well, you know, adults now. Mm -hmm. So well, I imagine, are they still fluent? No, they're not fluent. Uh, but they, you know, the lessons learned and all of that. And, and they did pick up some language skills that would come back if they needed it pretty quickly. So, yeah. I bet yeah. they That's rocked their high school Spanish class. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> uh, so it was a good experience. And 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 I learned a lot and, and I've gotten a lot of professional value out of that experience. And, and, and I've continued to work down there. And so I have a lot of colleagues all over Mexico. I've traveled all over that country and, uh, and uh, done a lot of work. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's served me well, both professionally and personally. Cool. So uh, you've, you do a lot of research too. You've had lots of graduate <laughs> students. So, and you've, and you've covered an extensive, uh, you know, area in agriculture. You want to like, what are some of the projects you've worked on over the years? I know it's going to be hard to pick a few out. What are you most but, proud of? Yeah, what are you well, most proud of? Well, yeah, it's, I have a lot of interest. That's one of my problems is that I have too many interests. And so I suppose I could have gone deeper in a lot of things if I had narrowed it up, but I, I tend to do a lot of things. I guess one way to characterize what I've done is, is I have tried to be, uh, to learn more about the, the physical and production systems behind the economics than some people do, I think. Um, and I'm not throwing rocks at anybody, but I really have made a lot of effort in trying to learn, you know, from the Mexico experience, the Southeastern Colorado experience, trying to understand range production systems and various forage systems that, that, that go into cattle production systems and really try to understand those at a decent level. Not that I pretend to be those kind of scientists, but uh, to really get into that and, uh, and try to do that. So, uh, you know, I've kind of focused on the international trade stuff in recent years. I focused a lot on the stocker industry, which is so important here in Oklahoma and is not well understood outside of the Southern Plains in many ways. 
uh, at least what we do here. Um, and, and so I've, I've tried to, those are probably the two areas I focus on as much as anything, but I've done a wide range of things, uh, as far as working with graduate students. You've dove into the health side in the last year and a half or so. That's right. Um, which has been really enjoyable. I've got to do some of those things with you and I think maybe in the future we'll do more, but tell us a little bit why, you know, the health side of the cattle industry has kind of sparked your interest. You know, again, coming out of that interest in the production systems and trying to understand that. And and some of it, it depends on the graduate students that come along and what their interests are. If there's, you know, we try to accommodate the student's interest if if it fits at all with the kinds of things that we can fund or, or whatever. Um, and I'm fortunate that I do hold a an endowed professorship position, which has some money that gives me some flexibility to kind of do what I want or to accommodate a student that's doing something that I'm interested in. And so uh, so I had a student a number of years ago that came from a large ranch uh, in New Mexico. And and actually, that ranch had had some really uh, unfortunate experience with BVD, bovine viral diarrhea on the ranch. And so she was interested in taking a look at the, you know, the the implications of that for the cattle industry. And and uh, and so that was really the beginning of that. Uh, we used her her master's work as a, as a way to dig into that. And then that led to other things, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I was invited to make a couple of presentations. I find that working with veterinarians that they don't get a lot of help from economists sometimes. And so they really appreciate it when they get some. Mm-hmm. And so they've been very, very supportive of the things I've tried to do. So I've, I've published a paper two now, a uh, paper or two now on some of these animal health issues and kind of the economic implications uh, of why we maybe don't have more success than we do from a purely veterinary standpoint. Uh, at the end of the day, of course, I'm an economist. I'm going to say it's going to come back to economics, but it really does in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the costs and benefits really drive what we do and don't do. And so uh, so that's been fun. Yeah, that's, a, I think, a big topic in the industry going forward. And so it will be. Um, I'm convinced that uh, the more we learn about the problems we have at the stocker and feedlot levels with animal health, the more we're going to realize we got to take it all back to the cow-calf level mm-hmm. and get those calves where they don't ever get sick in the first place, or at least to a much less degree. Manage it and, a little and, bit. And, it, and, and I think that's going to take us to a lot of places we've not been before. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in continuing some of that work. Yeah. What you're telling me is in 30 years, some poor graduate students got to look at your research and put it on their <laughs> thesis and wonder, who is this guy and why do I have to be looking at this old research? <laughs> you know, um, I, I already recognize that, I mean, I don't feel like I've done that much stuff in one sense. And yet when you kind of put it all in one place, yeah, there's going to be some stuff around. And, and I, I do get that. And I've been around long enough now that people, you know, cite stuff that I wrote nearly 30 years ago now. And that's a little bit scary. But, uh, <laughs> but the good news is I'm still trying to do some things and still learning. That's the other thing is that, it, you know, this the cattle industry in particular is so humbling because every time you think you know something, you figure out you don't know very much. Well, and so BVD topic you were talking about with your graduate students, such a perfect example of the land grant mission. And a lot of the common public doesn't really understand, I don't think, land grant universities and their ability to take ground level problems and turn them into viable research. Yeah, exactly. And the economic twist on that is really interesting because the stocker and feedlot guys are very frustrated. They've got good drugs and vaccines that are getting better all the time. Of course, they cost more money, too. But but they really don't seem to be making a lot of progress on that. Mm -hmm. And again, what they you know, the economics part of it is that. 
the people who could really help them solve some of those problems are the people who don't get rewarded for doing a better job. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a type of market failure. And so until we address it from that level, to some extent, we're probably going to continue to not make as much progress as we'd like. And Oklahoma is a great place to do that research, seeing we have so much cow-calf and stalker producers in the same yeah. area. And and or, no and no no limit of uh, weather challenges yeah. and other things. That- or producers could be both. You know, and understand kind of both those systems. Yeah, sometimes I got to have a conversation myself. Like, Trent, do you value the herd health program you're putting in yourself? Because you're going to take your own calves and put them on wheat. So I'm getting to play both roles there. Yeah. And you see the implications across those lines. It is two different enterprises. It's two different things. But- Whenever you just keep them on your ranch the whole yeah. time, it kind of well, gets lost. They're not as separate in that context as we have tried to make them, mm-hmm. I think. And that's where mm-hmm. some of the problem lies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. And that got into research really fast. But I want to go back to something <laughs> yes, you said. Yes, absolutely. Sorry. Mexican food's near and dear to my heart as well. <laughs> and I kind of want to know where or what region of Mexico has the best food. Oh boy. You know, that's a, a the the short answer is that there is no answer because there is no such thing as Mexican food. Mexico is a very very diverse country regionally. Uh every part of Mexico is a, a different culture, different music, different food, mm-hmm. different uh, views of everything. And so so what I have is no matter whatever region I'm going to, I can tell you a favorite Mm-hmm. But there is no one for the whole country because it really is. And that's part of what I think, you know, again, if you don't have experience, you tend to paint with a pretty broad brush. And so, oh, yeah. you know, Mexico is a place, um, you know, we do the same thing. I realized a few years ago, I finally got the chance to go to South America a couple of times. And so I've been in, in Argentina a couple of times in Brazil once and a little bit in, in Uruguay. And until you go, it's a continent. South America was the place, but it's it's made up of a bunch of very different countries. Mm-hmm. And it's not until you go and see those countries individually that you start thinking about them individually. And the same is true for regions within a country. For me, Africa is still a place because I've never been there and really had a chance to, to recognize that it's, well, I don't know what it is, 50 or 60 very different countries. Mm-hmm. But I can't appreciate that because I've not been there. So Mexico is is probably more diverse north to south than the U.S. is north to south or east to west. Um, and so it's a very different place. That's a reason so, I went to Europe and it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Europe was a continent. But then when I went to the Czech Republic. There's very, there's a lot of Eastern European influence. Then you go to Germany and it's a mix of both, literally. You yeah. Had East and West Germany. Yeah, exactly. And you can cross a street and see different architecture from exactly. the Soviet area or era. And then you come back to the Western side and it's a little more modern, a little more. Yeah. Uh, industrial and then you go over to Amsterdam and then it's a completely different animal when you get to Amsterdam. It, it, it is. And that's part of what's been so much fun. The international stuff is something I never planned on. I never thought I was interested in it until I fell into it. And I've enjoyed the work I've done there. I've also had the opportunity to take students there a number of times on various trips, mostly to Mexico, uh, once to Canada. And it's just a lot of fun And I've taken producers actually to Mexico about three times. I think I've taken different producer groups down there. And it's a lot of fun to expose them to that and watch them develop that appreciation for what's different and also how, how different we're not. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you, if you set a group of cattle producers in Mexico down and took away all of the obvious things that seem different, the basic 
attitudes and concerns and challenges they face are not any different here. And so I've sat in some groups of producers down there and it was like being in an extension meeting in Oklahoma in many ways. Yeah, I've, I know some of the producers that went with you in one of the Oklahoma Cattlemen's trips and they just, that, that was one of the biggest things. They're like, they're just like us. They're just a different language. I mean, I've had two of them tell me that it's just, it's so much, so similar, you know, in so many ways, once you get past, you know, getting over the border and all that kind of extra stuff that that's kind of like, uh, you know, makes people apprehensive, but then, you know, it's just the same. Well, one of the the fun questions I get at meetings that I can't answer very well in a short period of time is producers will ask us, you know, why are we importing beef or why are we importing <laughs> cattle? And they're diff- they're different products completely. Maybe you can go into what, what is the Mexican cattle industry? How does it influence our markets and kind of in terms of beef and meat quality, what, what role are those cattle filling? You know, it's evolved a lot over time. So we have a long history that really goes back to the Civil War in the U.S. and even a little bit earlier than that in terms of importing cattle from Mexico. And that was just a basic issue of economics of sort of what resources were there. Mexico has lots of extensive land areas that really has no other potential for agricultural production than grazing, uh, arid and semi-arid regions and so on. So they had a comparative advantage, if you will, in cow-calf production. And, you know, and they haven't always been the most productive systems. It's an extensive area, but we have some areas like that. If you go to New Mexico and Arizona and some places like that, it's not a lot different. And so, so that was the main driver. They had a comparative advantage in producing calves. We had a big market for beef. Uh, and so that trade has been there a long time. In the 90s, then Mexico became a significant importer of beef from the U.S., and that's just a function of their population relative to their basic resource base. Um, and so they became a, a market for us. To, to, so it was they were sending calves up here. We had the, the, the comparative advantage, if you will, in finishing those cattle and processing the beef and sending certain products back. And then most recently in the last uh, decade to maybe 15 years is the fact that Mexico now has gotten to a point where they are a significant beef exporter. And so we have this bilateral trade with Mexico. We also do the same thing with Canada. And that really drives people nuts. Why are we doing it both ways? But, mm-hmm. you know, the thing about the beef industry is once you take that animal apart, it's hundreds, literally thousands of different products. And each of those products is a separate market. And so it gets very complicated. But that's the bottom line is that uh, in all cases, it's, it's about markets trying to seek out the highest value, whether it's an animal or a particular meat product or beef product, it's markets trying to figure out where the best value is for those. Yeah, it's amazing how a cow can turn a simple blade of grass into so many different products. <laughs> it really is. Whether it's cosmetics or medicine or food oh, or yeah. leather, you know, just on and on and on about the different products. Yeah. Um, I've actually done a, a, a little more work on the meat side in recent years. When I came to Oklahoma and took this job, nobody told me I'd get very far into the meat side of things. But you can't really understand cattle markets unless you learn at least some about the beef markets. And so uh, so I've gotten more into that. And and again, the the thing that comes out of that is is just an appreciation. Even if you limit it to to just meat products. I'm, you know, nobody really knows, but I would estimate the beef industry probably produces somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 different products, ultimately. 
And that's not even counting the byproducts, the offalls, mm-hmm. the cosmetics, the the co-products that come out of it. Just straight up various meat products. Um, from the food standpoint. From so the food yeah, standpoint, by the time you take it all the way through all the levels of further processing and, and uh, you know, the food service line versus the retail grocery line and all of that, it's absolutely mind boggling how complicated that set of markets is. And, you know the beauty of markets is it all works and it's a good thing. We don't have to make them work because none of us could figure out how to do that. If we had to. Speaking of all the different markets, how much has that been turned upside down for the COVID era? Oh man. Um, You know, the challenges the beef industry has faced uh, in, in 2020 has just been phenomenal. And it really comes down to those two major food lines. So, um, you know, U S food consumption, at least going into COVID was a, was roughly 50, 50 between food service or food away from home, if you will, and retail grocery. Of course, we basically shut half of that off uh, in the early uh, shutdown in, in March. And so, uh, uh, we basically channeled all of the meat demand from two lanes of traffic into one lane of traffic, and that caused a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. And we're still there, you know, several months later now. Um, food service is slowly coming back, but it's still greatly restricted from what it was. Um, you know, the food, the, the quick service, the fast food places have recovered the most. Uh, sit down restaurants are continuing to struggle, but there's still a lot of issues. And so, yeah, the product mixes, the uh, the challenges. One of the things we learned was that those two uh, supply chains are actually pretty specialized and they don't cross over without a lot of effort. And so there were some real challenges initially, some of which we've gotten past now, but uh, it's just very, very complicated. Oh, yeah. We might be able to come out of this stronger in some ways in terms of our supply chains. Well, I think we will. We've certainly, you know, the specialized supply chains are very efficient, but they're also somewhat inflexible. Mm-hmm. And and so we're probably going to come out of this somewhat more resilient than we were before. Um, with a little luck, we won't ever need this much uh, resilience, but you can't rule it out. So, um, you know, this probably has some long lived, if not permanent changes. Yeah. Well, you know, you have been doing podcasts longer than us. <laughs> <laughs> and you have your own podcast. Yes. And we'd like to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about what you guys do at the Farm to Market podcast. That I got that name right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And kind of let you do a little bit of a plug and talk some about that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's a, that's a fun thing that we do. It's 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 not actually part of my official job. Uh, it does overlap some. We wind up doing some things that are educational and and uh, and we wind up talking about uh, cattle and meat and beef and various things, but we do it in a different way. Uh, a former student of mine that I stayed in contact with, and he's not a former student anymore. He's just a friend and a colleague now. Um, uh, and we had had conversations for years. And at some point uh, he said, why don't we do a podcast? And I literally almost had to say, what is a podcast? <laughs> I mean, I, I did know in a very simple sense what they were, but I'd never listened to them. Um, but anyway, we started playing with the idea and a few months later um, started doing the farm to market podcast. And so it's a wide ranging thing. We have a lot of fun with it and and we're going to keep doing it as long as it's fun. Uh, if it stops being fun, I think we probably wouldn't do it, but we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, we cover rural culture, agriculture, uh, history, uh, particularly ag and rural history. Uh, and anything else that we decide to do. And so we've just had a lot of fun with the farm to market podcast. 
um, talking about food issues. What I guess if there's an underlying theme to the Farm to Market podcast, what we would hope is that it would connect rural communities and rural uh, rural economies with consumers and folks that really don't understand it. Yeah, I think that that's what you've done very well, Dr. Peel. I've listened to quite a few and I think that you really provide a, a fantastic like introduction to agriculture. Like you've talked about leather, you've talked about the culture. I mean, yeah, like just it's just been it's been a learning experience for me who grew up in agriculture, but you know, all the things, I mean, it's, it's been really fun. It has I, been I fun. really <laughs> like to listen to it. Um, I've got, well, a, wait, we do have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. yeah. Charlie, um, Charlie adds to your personalities are great. Charlie Amos. Yeah, is Charlie Amos is partner. my partner in this and uh, we do a lot of them together. We just, and, and now we have to work at it a little bit more. It's a little more work because we kind of exhausted all the obvious topics after mm-hmm. a few months. So we have to think about what we're going to do. And we actually sometimes have to do a little bit of research, but it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty low level research. Uh, to, to be able to talk about a topic a little bit. And we try to have guests on and we brought in a lot of different people. It's a way to spotlight some of the colleagues and some of the interesting folks that we've run into. One of the things that we've done a little bit, and I would like to plug this as part of it, we haven't done as much of it as I would like. We started trying to find some of these, I'm going to call them senior agricultural producers, guys that have been around a long time that have a lot of experience that we really need to get their stories documented while we can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we actually dubbed these, Charlie came up with his name. We call them the 501 series when we do these episodes because he said, these old guys, if they have one thing in common, they all wear 501 Levi's. <laughs> and so we, we sit down with these guys. We've talked to several of these, uh, you know, senior, senior producers just to get their stories down. And inevitably we find those are really fascinating. And, and I'd love to be able to do more of that. And, and I always worry that some of the ones I'm thinking about are going to get away before I get a chance to sit down with them. But we hope to do more of that as time goes on. One of my favorite episodes, and you may not consider yourself senior, but <laughs> you were talking about some things that I considered to be old, old stuff, like taking a calf to the supermarket cooler to butcher it and, and canning and things like that. And the worries about botulism and canning and things like that. And yeah. I thought... What's old is new again because we've gone full circle. It wouldn't I wouldn't have thought that, you know, how soon it's been since our families had a milk cow, had mm-hmm. their own pigs and beef that they butchered on the farm. Yeah. And then now we've gone to where we are now. And now producers are trying to get back to that local food movement and, and kind of, you know, I see, a, I have lived long enough that I'm starting to see some of that come around mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of frightening on one level, but, <laughs> but, you know, on the crop side, I can remember, you know, now we're, we're, we're seeing a lot more, you know, cover crops, you know, green manure crops, whatever you want to call them, crop rotations, you know, we went through about 50 years where everything was about monoculture agriculture. Yeah. And it was really true whether we were talking pastures or crop systems. And, and we and we gained a lot from that. I mean, we saw a lot of increase in productivity, but we also learned that there's limits to that. And so now we're kind of coming back around. And I find it interesting that we're talking about some of these crop rotations and and cover crop kinds of things that I had in some old books when I was a kid, the things I was reading that were above my level, but I was, that's kind of what got me interested in agriculture. I wish I had those old books. Now I think, I think a lot of people would be fascinated to realize that all this quote new stuff we're doing now uh, with cover crops and all that is mostly stuff that we were doing routinely in the forties and fifties. And then we kind of moved away from it. Yeah. I remember I I started with OSU with Dr. Peeper. Uh huh. And if you ever knew him, he was real big and old 
farm manuals and stuff. And we started working on the canola project. He'd get out these manuals about crop <laughs> rotations from John Deere and this, that, and the other. And this was yep. 60, 70 year old material. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's it, come full circle. It really has. And I think that's one of the the perspectives that we probably need to, to pick up on a little bit more in general is, is to recognize that we've done lots of things that have increased productivity and made food cheap in this country and, and allowed us to kind of take for granted food systems. But we also have learned where those limits are. We are, you know, in some cases still learning where those limits are. And in some cases we've gone too far one direction or another, and we learn that we have to pull it back a little bit. So Mm -hmm. it's fun. The farm to market podcast has been a great way to just delve off into topics that we either, uh, enjoyed talking about and thought we knew a little bit about or an excuse to go learn something about something we didn't know anything about and and we're having fun with it. So Farm to Market podcast, it's on, uh, you know, Apple or Spotify or Stitcher, uh, any of those. Um, you can search for Farm to Market podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another thing for people to remember when searching for podcasts is not all of us are all on the same platform. So if you have a little bit yeah. of trouble finding somebody, just look on a different platform to to mm-hmm. kind of see where it's all published. That's, yep. that's not standardized yet. No, it isn't. <laughs> and so. sometimes you might have to type out the whole name. It doesn't always <laughs> pop up maybe from ours. We're not as popular yet, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, if, if it's a good, I think these pair very well together. We have a little bit more educational base, but you guys, I think you guys have hit the nail on the head with the um, it's um, entertaining. Well, we, 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 we have fun and, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of fun and we just hope that some folks share that a little bit. (laughs) Well, I hate to say it, but I think we've come to the end of our time together today. Really enjoyed having you here, Dr. Peel. You bet. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.